0: Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangeley Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangeley, and with me as always my co-host and Rangeley's founder, Chris DeMuth. It is Tuesday, September 13th, and today we're going to start by talking about the Wells Fargo cross-selling scandal, and then we're going to move on to Chris's article of the week since we missed his article of the week yesterday. Uh, So, Chris, Wells Fargo scandal. They've been embroiled in an account opening scandal. Uh, Wells Fargo employees would sell customers unneeded services to get them to open new accounts. And so they would do one of two things. Sometimes they would lie to customers and a customer would try to open up a no-fee checking account. And they'd say, oh, if you you want no-fee, then you need to open up a savings account even though they didn't actually need to. So they'd get them... Unnecessary accounts that way. And other times they would just open accounts for customers without permission. Uh, like they'd open a credit card or a saving account in the customer's name, often using email addresses like no name at wellsfargo.com to, so that the customer wouldn't get any emails. Uh, but so they were opening a bunch of bogus accounts. All of this was done to meet aggressive cross selling and account opening goals the bank had set. And uh, the fallout has been severe. 5.3,000 5.3, employees participated in this over five years, resulting in 2 million unwanted accounts, uh, 1.5 million in fees, overdraft fees, all that sort of stuff for these unwanted accounts. Wells is set to pay a $185 million fine, uh, and it's really impacting their reputation as the best customer service bank among all the big banks. Uh, so, Chris, I think the CEO's head is on the line. There's a lot to talk about here. What do you think about the Wells Fargo scandal?
1: Well, first of all, it's a bank. You know, For most management teams and companies, I don't love it when they focus on the share price and the market reaction and complain about short sellers. But banking is sort of an exception. Yeah. You have to have Market confidence. Uh, I could run a perfectly adequate copper mine, and as long as I'm cranking out copper and selling it and have a margin, nobody needs to believe in me. Mm -hmm. But uh, banking doesn't work that way. Um, And I think that this is a real uh, example of how incentives matter and matter hugely and good incentives and bad incentives do not require coordination and there doesn't need to be a conspiracy you know one of my favorite lines in history class was the king that said you know will no one rid me of this troublesome priest surrounded by a bunch of knights with weapons and of course a couple ran off and massacred the guy and then (laughs) the king got to act shocked but they were acting consistent with incentives and consistent with what they knew the boss wanted. And in this case, you know, it's a company I hugely admired. But if you look at the boss and he's really in the category of justifiers, Mm -hmm. justifiers uh, typically uh, appeal to the scale. You know, hey, there's a high percentage of our employees who weren't defrauding customers. It's a big Mm -hmm. bank. Uh, A lot of people weren't doing it, but reputations don't work that way. You know, go home and tell your wife that many business trips do not involve frequenting brothels, and you'll see
0: that's not how reputations work. You know, I definitely agree with you. And Look, John Stumpf, the CEO and the prior chairman and CEO, had really made their reputation on Wells Fargo is the best bank at cross-selling accounts. We get the checking account, the credit card, and everything, so they had that – and he was out with an a, uh, interview in the Wall Street Journal today where he said, look, these were – it was 2% of our employees or something. So mm-hmm. it, it was just a couple of bad apples. But 5,000 employees were doing this? Like that's not a couple of bad apples. That's yeah. systematic fraud within the bank. I mean you know, if it was 50, you could argue it's one branch. But this is people all across the thing. I think it, he's arguing it's not a problem with Wells Fargo Incentive. But when that many employees are doing something – I think there is something seriously wrong with the incentive structure and you really have to look at the management team.
1: When when you're a stickler about this kind of thing, it's pretty simple. It's the rule, it's the principle. Don't lie, cheat, or steal. Mm. And kind of the things that hopefully everybody's grandparents or parents taught them, if you just draw the line there, it's, it's pretty easy. Um, I, I'm really surprised how much reputational cost people are willing to pay, Uh, you know, the the shame can be kind of useless. People who are trying to do the right thing sometimes feel massive shame over trivialities. But people who are willing to break these rules, uh, they, they go hugely off course and they seem kind of comfortable with justifying it, and it's really contagious. You know, with five
0: thousand employees doing it, though. I, again, I think you have to look at. I think Wells Fargo. It's probably indicative. You know, there are all those studies when someone's under massive amounts of pressure, they kind of forget about everything outside of the rules. And when you've got that many employees doing it, I think it really speaks to there was pressure from you know middle managers on the low on the branch people, which probably means there was pressure from the top people to the middle managers. There was just so much pressure to meet these numbers at any cost that I think they were really ignoring those types of things go ahead yeah, no
1: i think that, that's absolutely right it's so right it's what i was going to say next no short-term pressure um where you have a lot of responsibility to hit metrics but you don't really have authority but necessarily allows you to do it where you're inflexible in terms of your behavior but then flexibility in measuring why were the same people accountable also measuring their results that should have been a completely separate role and um you know it starts with a little exaggeration fudging around the end then maybe fixable lies maybe they thought they'd really bring in real accounts later and then very shortly they're just fraudsters
0: yeah and then you know the other the other thing here is So look, there's a $185 million fine. That is nothing in the grand scheme of things. Wells Fargo makes $20 billion plus net income every year. It's a $200 billion plus market cap bank. But the the stock price has dropped 5% in the past couple days. So that's $10 billion plus of market evaporated. Even against the weak market, it's down twice as much as the market. So people are clearly saying there's an issue here. And I think it's clear to see why you know, it, management didn't have their finger on 5,000 employees committing what what was systematic fraud. If they didn't have and it, it wasn't here... it was
1: well hidden. This was not well Yes, yeah, You know, no
0: name at Wells Fargo.com should have been the clearest thing or having, you know, 2 million inactive checking accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if Wells Fargo's management didn't have their finger on the pulse here, you know, what else do they not have the pulse on? Wells Fargo is pushing into investment banking. Do they have the pulse on? Are there traders like within their risk parameters for any trades they're making? You know, uh, if management didn't have their fingers on the pulse there, are there other huge reputational risks that they're missing? So I, I I think the market is right to kind of discount the company at this point. Go ahead.
1: What I always look for in an organization and playing defense, if you have a private organization or something you control, you can try to do this. If you're an analyst, you can try to judge it, which is are reversible failures treated with a way that you can easily admit and fix them without dire consequences so you can keep these little tiny loops and keep fixing reversible errors whenever you have a huge mistake like this, it usually is in a culture where you're not allowed to admit some trivial failure
0: yeah. And then the, the other thing I want to – well, I, I want to do two things. A, I want to come to Warren Buffett in a second. Sure. But the other thing I, I just want to comment on is isn't it interesting how this is the scandal that gets really big headlines and gets uh, you know 5,000-plus mm-hmm. people fired and might get – I think the CEO's job is certainly on the line. But uh, something like the LIBOR scandal, which you know LIBOR impacts $350 trillion. It impacts every mortgage that is ever made. Uh, The Libor scandal resulted in less than five people going to jail and no management got fired. It's interesting how something... Uh, LIBOR is kind of a w- weird, fuzzy number, but uh, your checking account is something that touches you personally. So this gets the outrage. This gets Elizabeth Warren to t- comment on the CFPB. Yeah. This gets the congressional hearings. I don't know if you it's, want to say it's just at a
1: human scale that people uh, people really understand.
0: Yeah. So it, let me ask. This is Warren Buffett. It is yeah. his second largest position, right behind Cra- right behind Kraft Heinz at this point. Mm-hmm. It's one of his oldest positions, and he has said many times, when I look at a stock, I consider, do I want to invest in this stock or do I want to buy more Wells Fargo. Like, this is the thing he benchmarks everything gets. I've got thoughts on this. I am interested in your thoughts. Do you think Warren Buffett will get involved?
1: I think he should. Um, I think it will depend somewhat on whether things expand uh, beyond this. Uh, if you listen to his standard and his words uh, in front of uh, Congress, his, his testimony when he was in the process of... Of temporarily uh, becoming the interim chairman of Salomon, now part of Citigroup, it just absolutely sounds he's like he's talking about this very situation.
0: Yeah, so so Salomon's the one you think of, but I, I think at this point in his career, I think he's kind of beyond that. I doubt he's publicly going to get involved. Uh, you know He's been very supportive of all of his CEOs of his big positions. Mm-hmm. I think of uh, American Express, where a lot of activists have even agitated to fire the American yeah. Express CEO. They think he's done a poor job transitioning to the digital age. But Buffett's been very uh, supportive of him. I don't think he'll get involved. Uh, Publicly, But privately, I would guess he pulled something like Coke a few years ago when Coke, there were issues with their pay package. And publicly, he supported them. And then privately, he talked to the board, expressed his concerns, and got changes made. I would guess publicly, he says, look, this wasn't on the CEO. I fully support him. But privately, he talks to the CEO and gets the culture fixed. And I wouldn't be surprised if the CEO... If he decides the CEO is not the one to handle this, if he helps move the CEO along. Go ahead.
1: That sounds exactly right to me.
0: Okay, great. So uh, why don't we move on to your article of the week? Uh, we didn't get to it yesterday because we were running a little long talking about Tesla. Uh, I'll let you introduce the article and the background and everything.
1: The article I picked is called "Sugar Industry and Coronary Heart Disease Research: A Historical Analysis of Internal Industry Documents." You know, these JAMA articles don't really need to put on the PR uh, in terms <laughs> of fun, but it's an unbelievably fascinating uh, article. It has gotten picked up by other uh, other press uh, since then. Um, and there um, was
0: a, there was a big New York Times article this morning, which hadn't run long yesterday. We would have scooped them. Yeah, but that's okay.
1: But I, I would say, um, first of all, just a, a a short word on what it says and also my interest. Um, I'm very interested in superlatives. Whenever anything is the most or the least, we were recently talking about uh, the lowest. Uh, volatility in a very, very long time, just last week, I think. And it's always interesting that there's a huge uh, distribution for things to mean revert. In the last century or so, the biggest dietary change by far is this spectacular spike in sugar consumption mm-hmm. that ancient people all the way to, you know, very recent in history, you know, one or 200 years ago, had almost no... Uh, refined sugar in their diet yep. and I think it's actually a function of consumerism that people like it and so all sorts of foods that you don't even associate with sugary sweet foods have massive massive sugar contents. and I think if you have a somewhat lower sugar content your competitor just comes in and on first bite people like it more mm-hmm. uh, Pepsi beats Coke in taste challenges because it is slightly sweeter even yep. though people tend to like Coke over time um, so what this shows is uh, the article uh, shows that the uh, sugar lobby the backed group, uh, has systematically uh, been intervening in uh, medical research over the last several decades to diffuse uh, research directions that really would have seriously questioned connection between, first of all, an older discovery, sucrose and cavities, and then more recently, it discuss- came to light that they really uh, coordinated uh, efforts to to uh, dissociate sucrose from coronary heart disease, the number one killer in America.
0: Yeah, and one of the things uh, it it goes on to say is they do a lot of – they had a lot of influence over the first FDA guidelines and the American diet and the food pyramid and everything. Mm -hmm. The sugar industry was really influential there. And I think it's a great example of regulatory capture. I think it's a great example of – Kind of political lobbying incentives matter. If uh, you know, if you're getting funded by the soda industry or the sugar industry, you're probably not going to put out a paper that says, "Hey, sugar is what causes heart diseases that leads to death." You're probably going to blame it on something else. So I think it's a great example of all of that. Go ahead. The, the the the
1: John John Yedkin was that was the one who really identified sugars as the primary um, uh, agent. Um, in terms of uh, CHD, it looked like very promising research, and that was kind of the natural progression direction, the science. Uh, was going. Uh, and then it's very funny just how, you know, behind the scenes uh, kind of a um, uh, capture of this is, as you said, um, you know, what's new in sugar research presented to the American Society of Sugar Beet Technologists said, you know, we really should go after fat. Yeah. And the whole idea of low fat, which I remember more, you know, kind of the 80s, 90s was kind of a label on everything. It mm-hmm. was just a creation of the sugar lobby. Uh, to get uh, their uh, their problems kind of uh, foisted off on somebody else.
0: You know, and more recently there's been a big battle over soda taxes mm-hmm. uh, recently, and I yeah. believe the first... There had been, until Berkeley got one passed in 2015, there had been 30 attempts to pass a soda slat, a soda tax, and the uh, soft drink industry had managed to beat, beat them all back. Mm-hmm. Uh, in New York, I think they tried to pass one in 2010, and the soda industry spent like $10 million to beat it back. And it's one of those things, you know, similar to a lot of oil companies with global warming, you would see the soda industry would come out and argue like, there's no proof that if you tax these drinks, it leads to any public health benefits or that it leads to decreased sugar, and they would argue, well, you know, low-income consumers uh, spend more of their money on soft drinks, so this is uh, in- disproportionately hurting low-income consumers, but the results of the Berkeley one so far have been great. They did a one-cent-per-ounce tax, and it resulted in a 21% decrease in soda drinking, and there was an article on Mexico passed one, I believe, last year, and the early results from that have been fantastic, mm-hmm. too. Go ahead. Yeah, no,
1: it really, really, really is. Um, You know, sugar interests have historically been incredibly effective about public policy. They're rich, they're concentrated, and just great at looking out for their interests. They're one of the biggest um, uh, subsidy uh, recipients Mm -hmm. uh, in the country, which, of course, pushes – Pushes up costs on consumers, which in turn, if you look at it, is ultra regressive because the poor spend a very high percentage of their income on yep. food. Uh, the middle class, moderate, and wealthy people, uh, you, you can't <laughs> only spend so much on food. So you're to eat fancy food it's some trivial amount. And it's so funny to terms.
0: me. I, I think just a couple of weeks ago there was a uh, the cheese industry got a big subsidy or bailout or like the mm-hmm. the government bought a ton of cheese. And it's so funny to me how these these food industries managed to argue for protectionism for tariffs. bailouts and everything like what shouldn't that be like the the most natural place for uh You know unfettered competition it just makes no sense to me how they you said it they they're such a small interest they can diffuse their costs over tons of people but it's crazy how they get regulatory capture like that
1: when i uh, hear somebody who says uh, they're in it for the profit and they're out there to make money and they're giving goods and services to customers at prices they're willing to pay i I think it's usually true Uh, when you have some organization that comes in and they are uh, tangentially saying oh you know this is uh, something you should do, and we're kind of we kind of are doing it for altruistic, generalized reasons. Uh, there's usually some lobby that's behind the scenes that's not only doing it for profit, but doing it in a disingenuous way. Yeah, it's
0: kind of like you know, with national defense reviews. It's crazy how many things become in the best interest of national defense when a a lobby doesn't want something to happen, right?
1: Absolutely. Um, I have one last little thought. Yeah, 10 on seconds and then we'll call um, it. Which is, they often get it right, but only long after the cost is paid by the people directly involved. You know, the police are very good at responding to crime, but usually they have to call the, coronator, coronary, the coroner, too, uh, when there's been a violent crime. If, if you're interested in personally being safe and protected, you have to think for yourself. hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Okay, great. So why don't we call it there? That's all the time we have for today. Just before we hit our disclosures, a reminder, if you like this podcast, the best way to get more of them is to recommend us to a friend and get them to start listening. Uh, Listener numbers really encourage us to keep taping them. Disclosure, none for me. Chris, we mentioned Berkshire a little bit. I think you might be along a little of that. Along a little Berkshire. Okay, so that's all of our disclosures, and we will talk to you soon.